0: Let's look at Mark 6, verse 30. Uh, I'm going to read verse 30 through 46. and um, we're going re- I'm not going to comment too much on some of the details here because we shared, I've shared a couple of past uh, weeks around this some of these themes, the, for example, the decision to take a rest and to get away and, and to take some time to recover. Also shared around the idea of meeting a need and how Jesus fed the 5,000 and and the, the importance of being open to meeting needs around us. So, I'm gonna to try to take this in a slightly different direction, but I'm gonna read through the passage because it sets up where we need to go. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. He had sent them out uh, and they had come back with their report. And there must have been something that he noticed in their body language or in their eyes because he felt compelled to have them get away from the crowds and the multitudes. It says, and he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and I want you to rest for a while. I want you to get away and rest. You need some rest. It says here that there were many coming and going. There was so much activity around Jesus that we're told here that the disciples didn't even have enough time to really eat right. It says they weren't even even having time to eat. And of course, it is possible to be so stressed out, so busy, so driven, that we're not taking care of ourselves and we're getting depleted. And that's kind of the picture that Jesus gives us of the disciples. They were at a point where they were he was concerned. He was concerned about them physically and and uh, their emotions and just the stress levels. And that's important to even see that Jesus notices those things. And he says, you know what? We need to get away. We need to get away from the crowds. Everybody's pulling on us. Jesus was very popular at this time. The crowds were swarming. The disciples were constantly having to engage. It was all kinds of things that were happening that would have increased the stress levels. And so Jesus said, let's get away. Let's take a little mini vacation. Let's let's leave the multitudes here, the people here, and let's go across to the other side of the sea. Of Galilee, which is just the lake of Gennesaret. Let's go to the other side. And you know what? There's a spot that I know of. We know in, the, in a little bit outside, in near a wilderness area, we can get away together. We talked about the value of community solitude and the value of getting away with others to be replenished. And it says here that he, he, he said these things, and so they departed, in verse 32, to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived actually before them and came together to him." I mean, Jesus, when when word got out that he was crossing over, people said, we know where he's going. And they actually, some of them actually beat him by foot, beat the disciples across, and they were in the boat, um, assuming that they were going to have time to be alone, they must have been absolutely, uh, let's just say, less than overjoyed by the welcoming crowds that awaited them on the shore by the Sea of Galilee. And it says that Jesus got out of the boat, and, and, and one would have expected it. You know, he might have been a little irritated. Can we, find, can we, can we ever get alone? But it, it says he wasn't. He's actually filled with compassion. We talked about there are going to be times in our lives where God wants our compassion to be greater than our irritation. And how one is, we're going to have to choose which one we're going to yield to. And it says that Jesus, when he came out, look at verse 34 there. It says he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion. And the metaphor that he brings up here is he says, because he saw them like a shepherd, you know, would see his sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as sheep having no shepherd, without any protection, without any guidance, without anyone to direct them. He them, he, He saw them needing his words and he gave them. He met that need. He responded to it. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and so it it says he paused and took time to teach them. And what did he do? When he saw them, the first thing he does is he teaches them. He gives them his healing words. He gives them his good words. It's interesting before the, even the physical need is met, he begins with his healing words, which is kind of opposite in the way you think we think it might be done. But that's what he did. Notice here, it says, then Jesus, when he came out, he saw this multitude, verse 35, after you've been teaching them throughout the day. It says, the day was now far spent, which is the Bible's way of saying it was getting near night, near an end. His disciples came to him and they said, this is, Lord, this is a deserted place. And the hour is, is pretty late already now. And they don't have any food. No one had planned on this event. This was kind of like something that just kind of happened. We appreciate the fact that you've been teaching all day, but you know what? They got to eat. People got to go, maybe we should dismiss the meeting and send them on their way and we can get back with the things that we had come to do, right? And Jesus said, you know what? I want you to do something. I want you to feed them all. And they said, Lord, do you, have you looked at the amount of people we have here? Do you know how much money that would cost us? Look what it says. It would take 200 denarii, which is a denarii, it would have been like a half a year's wages for a common laborer, Lord." The amount of money to, to feed a crowd like this, we don't, even if we had access to it and could get it here, we don't, it just it's costly. Look what Jesus says. He says, verse 38, But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded, verse 39, them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. Interestingly enough, he sits them down. He tells them to sit down in ranks of 50 and 100, which was a, basically Jesus' is modeling for us the value of organization. And how even this was not going to be a reckless melee. He already knew what he was going to do, but he had them organize the crowd so that they could be fed in a proper way. And look what it says happens. It says that they sat down, and when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven... And what has to be one of the most amazing miracles and works of Jesus. He blessed and broke the loaves. He gave them to his disciples, set them before them, and the two fish he divided among them all, and they all ate and were filled. And then they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and the fish that were just left over. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and the children. That was a huge group. And, you know, one of the things that stands out here, you know, is that the, the disciples never forgot this particular miracle. Of all of the recorded miracles of Jesus, it's interesting. This is the only one that's recorded in every one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. With the exception of maybe you know, the resurrection, which I place in an entirely different category. This is the really stood out so much that they each wanted to talk about it. They never forgot it. They always remembered it. It was very powerfully impressed upon them. This stunning thing that Jesus did. And you know what? And it says that after he did the miracle, that immediately as he he made his disciples get into a boat. Mark tells us that they got into a boat, and then he sent them to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. So he scatters the crowd. He tells the crowd to go home. He sends the disciples away, and then he himself, we're told, goes up and departed to the mountain to pray. Now, we would have been able to just go, wow, that's pretty amazing. Mark's account is pretty detailed. It gives us a good picture of what transpired. But one of the values of having the other accounts, is that we are given an insight, particularly in John, about something that was actually happening that this particular account in Mark does not tell us. And it really does get us thinking in a different direction about what exactly was happening there after Jesus did this miracle. Look at John 6. It says, then those men, when they had seen the sign, this is verses 14 and 15, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, this work, they said, this is truly the prophet who, the prophet, who has come into this world. And therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him, this, and if you never, verse 15, think about what this verse 15 is saying. That when he perceived that they were about to take him by force and make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So they, they had it in their mind that they were going to forcefully make him the king. Now, if we think about this, if we look at it and we really try to uh, appreciate what is happening here, when they said, we think he is the prophet, what they were the reason they came to that, they, we believe he is the promised one. We believe he is the Christ. We believe he is the one that has been foretold of, that is going to lead us out of this bondage we find ourselves in. Because remember, at the time, here, the, the, Israel was under a degree of oppression. They were not an autonomous people. They lived under the banner of, the banner of Rome. Was present. There were Roman soldiers in the streets. Uh, they had certain rights that other nations didn't have. But you know, they, for example, they were given some uh, additional freedoms. They agreed to keep the contract. They had more religious autonomy than most conquered peoples did. They uh, were required, however, to pay taxes. This comes up a lot when you read the New Testament. They were not given also the ability to um, execute people in terms of capital punishment. They could. They could have their own court system, but there was one thing they were forbidden to do, and that was to exercise a capital punishment, which is, explains the reason why, when Jesus is later on crucified, even though it is the Sanhedrin that decides that he must die. They do not have the, the, the freedom legally under the Roman uh, overlord, if you will, under the requirements of Rome. They had to appeal to Ro- the Roman governor who was at the ta- that time Herod in order to have permission. Rome had to make that decision, which explains a lot of what happens at the end and prior to Jesus' crucifixion. It must be signed off on and executed by Rome. And so, but at, there was this seething anger in the people towards this Roman oppression. And there were a lot of different people who felt like, you know, we, we need someone to lead us to a point of freedom and national recovery. Where And the rumor was the Messiah is coming. Now, the, the reason they had thought a lot about this, the one, the prophet, is because way back in the time of Moses, as Moses was getting ready to die, Uh, he shares with the children of Israel as they're preparing to enter into the promised land. Remember, they had been delivered out of the captivity, the slavery of Egypt. They were on their way ultimately to the promised land, kind of had a lot of years in the wilderness. But prior to that, they had been told that they were going to be given a land of promise. They eventually get there. Moses is about to die. He's near the end of his life. He gives them his last words. And one of the things he says is he speaks into the future. And he prophesies or he declares that God is going to do something in the future. He is going to raise up one. He is going to raise up a prophet. Look what it says. In De- I just throw this up. We're going to throw this up in Deuteronomy 18, 13. It says this. It says, it says 15. It says that, it is 13. It says that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, right? From your midst and your brethren, and him you shall hear. So this idea, um, in this 15th verse, this idea of the of the promise of Moses that was given to Israel, that someday there would be one. Now think about it. In their mind, the crowd had just, what had just happened to the crowd? Just stay with me on this. They had just been given this amazing miracle of provision. They looked and they said, look, when Moses was there, Moses led us out of captivity. Moses, by the way, was the first one to ever work a wonder or a miracle uh, on on behalf of God. He was the first one to ever speak on God's behalf he was also the deliverer out of the captivity also when they brought the, when he when the children of Israel were brought into the wilderness God provided supernaturally with bread from heaven for them so it was what happens is the crowd is filled with this electric sort of connection around the idea that this is this this is the one this is the one we've been waiting for this is the prophet that moses prophesied here is the one who will deliver us even jesus his own band of disciples there was a man called simon who was who's known as simon the zealot he was a member of the zealot party the zealot party advocated the overthrow of rome it was in the people's mind and so they're saying they were just waiting for god to send them that person and now look Look at Jesus. He has the power. And it was like, it spread like wildfire. And we're told here that they, just, they, they, they got into such a frenzy, a kind of a mob-like frenzy, that they decided we're going to take him by force and make him king. I mean, it's a really amazing thing when you think about it. It was their intention to forcibly make him their king to lead them. They said, we have the weapon, and it is you. And we will be free. So there's this idea. But Jesus would not respond. He refused to accept it. He said, I am am a king, but I will not be that kind of a king. I'm operating on an entirely different plan. And if you think about it, he diffuses the crowd. I mean, one of the things we notice here is that, and we don't know how he did it. It's not really recorded for us. But it it implies that as this crowd is becoming mob-like and is preparing to physically take him and make him king by force, that he must have said something, and he managed to disperse the crowd. And he, what he said, how he said it, it isn't recorded, but one thing is clear, he refused to be the king that they wanted him to be because he had in his mind something far more profound. He was operating on a completely different plan. It was his father's plan. And that plan, because he was the king, but that plan was for him to do something that would be completely illogical and would, it would almost seem like um, it had no power in it at all. He was going to give his life away, that he said, so that the world may live. And think about this, Um, you know, Rome, Rome is is history. Today, if we want to look at the glory of Rome, we see crumbling, you know, pieces of architecture and archaeological sites, and we can read about it in our history books. Jesus said, listen, kingdoms are going to rise. Kingdoms are going to fall. Great nations will rise. Great nations will fall. There are boundaries appointed to every people and every power and every time. God sees it all. Nothing is missed. He says, but remember this. God is not impressed. He says, but there is a kingdom that will prevail. And it's the kingdom that I am bringing. And it's not about force and it's not about power. and It's not about national overthrow. I will not be that king to you. I am going to be the king. I It is a different kingdom. And if you think about it, the kingdom of Jesus is spread like leaven in the bread. It touches every corner of this world. It is far. Who would have ever thought it possible that the one who said that would outlive Rome by far? His kingdom touching every every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, every nation, every continent of this world. I mean, the amazing thing is we're just a small microcosm in this place of what's happening all over the world in different places. People talking about their love for the Lord Studying him, opening their lives to him, welcoming him in. His kingdom has no end. And you know what? That's amazing. It's amazing to me. We will make you king. You will be the king. I will not be your king. Not that way. So this is the point. You know, think about it. People, because they define what? They define success on the basis of power and freedom in this world. And so they said, Jesus, you know, you, we want you to be the king that you are. Do You have the power. If you think about it, that happened a lot to Jesus. Even John the Baptist, I'll just quickly allude to this. Think about John the Baptist. Some of, you, some of us remember that when he was the one who welcomes Jesus in and says, there he is, the one. Behold. He says, behold. He, he was telling the people that I am not the one, but I am preparing the way for the one. And I'm the forerunner. That there is one coming after me whose shoe I'm not even worthy to, to latch the sandal on. I mean, when he comes, I will tell, I will declare him. And it says, and it said, John the Baptist said, behold, there he is, the one. The, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he made that declaration. But what's, in, what's interesting is if you study what happens later, John the Baptist later on is put in prison. And in prison, he's confined. In his confinement, he starts to hear reports about Jesus. And Jesus isn't doing the things that he was expecting him to do. He had his conception of what The Messiah, the promised one, was supposed to do and be. And Jesus isn't doing it. And so John starts to have second thoughts. And he has his doubts and reservations about Jesus. It gets to such a point that as he, remember, he had declared him. He had said, there he is. But he's thinking, maybe I missed it. Maybe he's not the one. And there's this really interesting verse in Matthew 11. It says that, He sends, I think it's verse verse three, it says he sends a delegation out and he asks this question, wait a minute, are you the coming one or should we be looking for another? That was from John. And he's questioning questioning whether or not he got it right. And that causes Jesus, and this is the, the, the passage at the bottom of the handout, that causes Jesus to respond in this way. Look at this. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Tell him this. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor, the gospel, the good news preached to them. And then he makes this statement that is one of the most underappreciated verses in the New Testament. It's what I call the, the last beatitude, the forgotten beatitude. Blessed, he says, he says, and tell John this, blessed are those who are not offended of me. What, what was he saying? What does that mean? was saying that look i know it i may not be what john envisioned but he was on the mark and tell him this blessed are you if you do not stumble over what you do not understand about me blessed are you if you can embrace me even though you cannot fully appreciate what is actually happening blessed are you if you can live in the question it's a, it's a very profound statement. Now, we look at that, we go back to the, the 40, and really, and also one more thing there. Think about it. That was John, and what was he doing? He was questioning, he was wrestling. Are you really the one? Think about Peter when, Peter, when Jesus and Peter, because again, it had to do with, well, this is not what I thought you were going to be. We, and Peter even has the same thing, because Jesus says to him near the end of his ministry, he says, You know what, guys, uh, um, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be humiliated, and I'm going to be scourged, and I'm going to be beaten, and, and then I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. And he says, I, I'm also going to tell you something else. I'm going to rise. But they got stuck on the, the humiliation, scourged part, and the dying part. And you know what Peter says? No. No, Lord. We're not going to let that happen to you. That is not, that will not happen to you. We won't let it. You know what? That, and he said it was such a, no, he basically rebukes Jesus. He says, no, Lord, no, far be it from you. No, we will not allow it. That will not happen to you. That was, the, that was the voice of love. But it was love that was pulling Jesus away. And you know what Jesus did? The passion of Peter's statement causes Jesus to declare one of his most fierce responses, a rebuke at a deep, deep level. And he says, get behind me. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You, have a, you, are, you are a trap to me, a snare to me. For you do not savor the things of God. Your mind is focused on the things of man. Basically, you care about the glory, but you do not understand. It was an attempt to pull him away from the cross, which was everything he had come to do. It's the consistent pattern. People were always trying to move Jesus into their interpretation of success and power. And Jesus steadfastly pursued something that his father had given him, and it was our gift. Notice, it says that the last two verses of Mark 6, that it says immediately when he made it, it says that after the miracle was done and after they tried to make him king by force, Jesus basically says, no, it's time for you all to go. He has disperses the crowd. What always interests me here is that after Jesus makes the multitudes go, he says to the disciples, who we may assume were also caught up in the glory of it all, he says, you know what? You also need to go. In fact, you need to get in the boat and go to the other side, and I'm going to go alone and pray. Because you know what? You're not helping me right now. You need to go. So row that boat away <laughs> from me, right? It's almost like, you know what? You're not really helping me because it, uh, it, was, it was such a, uh, a it's, like, it's like when there's an attempt to undermine what, what was already hard. You know, just to see. so, okay, here, in the minutes we have left, let me quickly submit some things. I'm going to suggest, that, and, and this applies directly out of what happened with Jesus. They wanted to make him king. We'll, they wanted to do it by force. But I'm going to suggest that even though there may be wonderful opportunities that we are presented with, there are some things that even though they are wonderful opportunities, we may need to say no to them. It, this is a, a real uh, powerful principle, by the way, I think one of the faulty assumptions is that just because something opens up for us, it's automatically the will of God. There are some things that will actually um, under- undermine, um, or at least handicap, what is God's actually trying to do in our lives. And it may look like an open door. In fact, listen, not every, every door that opens is necessarily to be walked into. I mean, I mean they're opened up. It must be God. Not necessarily. They wanted to make him king now. But that wasn't the plan. That wasn't the plan. Come on, everybody's excited. We're excited, the disciples said. Let's go for it. This is everything we dreamed about. Yes, let's do this. They're with us. The people are with us. No. No, I will not be that king. I'm not going to be that kind of a king. I have a far different purpose, and I'm staying with it. You know, one of the things, the phrase that is often utilized is sometimes, I mean, maybe some of us have heard it, that the enemy of the best, is the good can sometimes be the enemy of the best? Now, we get this idea that sometimes the best things that God might have for us can be damaged by bad things, right? So we say, well, that's bad. That's not helpful. I mean, obviously, addictions are bad or things that are going to pull us away, stuff that we know, oh, this is obviously not good for us. So that's easy to see the difference between the the right path and a path that is not going to be good, it's going to hurt people, it's going to hurt our walk with God, it's going to just not be a good thing. We can see it. that Those decisions are pretty, that, the bad is the enemy of the, of the best things, but the good. There are some things that are competing goods. It's not like one's bad. It's just that we have to choose. And sometimes if we try to do everything, we'll, we end up doing nothing well. We dissipate our focus. One of the key things that the Lord teaches and models for us is the power of focus. And not simply just doing everything just because it opens up. There are some things that actually, even though they may be, listen, they may not be bad. They may actually be good and appealing, but they may not be the best way for us. But surely the door is opened up. It must be God. Not necessarily. There is the value of really sitting with things, praying with things, especially crucial key decisions that have huge impact in our lives. Well, we're gonna, Because you know what? Sometimes, I mean, how many times we see good things being pursued? I'll tell you, a lot of those things look, can look like success. But what do they cost? What does it mean for the overall purpose of God in our lives? How does it affect us relationally? How does it affect the people we love and are committed to? What about our growth with God? What about our relationship with the Lord? How is that going to be affected? What about the things that are happening, the growth that's occurring? We're going to just throw that out. it, It may be a good thing. Is it the best thing? See, and I'm not saying that there's clear cut. People say, well, can't you just give us like the exact rule? so that I can apply it every time, almost like it's science. And I'll say, it's actually following Jesus isn't li- and, and, and living life with God is not science. It's art. It's, it's wrestling with things. It's praying with other people who are also moving, seeking to move forward with God. It's being honest. It's asking questions. It's checking our emotions. It's not just going for first move. It's not necessarily saying, I'm gonna push through this thing because the door opened up, even when I was asking maybe for it. I still need to double check this. There are things that God, there is a way to live that is wise in the eyes of the Lord. We will be kept, many many times I think we we may actually hurt the overall purposes of the Lord for our lives because in our zeal, in our impatience, we're not thorough in the examination of our own heart before the Lord. And it's not like God's going to get mad at us. It's more like we're undercutting his desire to bless us in the longer haul. Okay. Secondly, and this is going to be in the form of a question. And it flows out of this study. But the question I ask is this, can we still love Jesus even when he refuses to do what we want him to do? Now they say, we want you to be king. He said, no, I'm not going to do it that way. And I think a lot of times people, you know, because the people were fickle. I mean, they, he did wonders for them. He gave them their miraculous provision. And so they loved him because he did what they wanted. Right? So it, it's how can I say it? It's easy to be grateful when we get what we want. Thank you. You're awesome. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give, give me what I want. But there is a point, and I maybe that's pushing it too far, but there is a point where we have to see, we find ourselves in situations in life where we are not where God is not cooperating. He is refusing, we, at least, he is not cooperating on our time frame, on our provision, what we want, what we've been asking for. Come on, God, I mean to deal with you. I honor you, you take care of me. It's how it works. You provide. Where are you? Show up. I'm, I'm disappointed with you. Disappointed with you. You've got to hold up your end. See, the question of will we love the Lord, not when we when he's blessing, but the question is what will our love look? Can we love him? when we're not getting what we wanted. There was a moment where Jesus stopped doing the miracles. He started saying things like, you know what, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. He started saying things like, you know what, you're actually going to have to make a decision. Are you really committed to me? You know what happened? The crowds melted away. To the point where Jesus turns to the rest of his core followers, his disciples, and he asked, Jesus asked them this question. Think about it. Think about the vulnerability of it. The humanness of it. He turns to them as the multitudes no longer are there. And many of them are saying, you're not what we thought you were. We reject you. And Jesus turned to his disciples and says, will you you also go away? And Peter, you know, he was capable of saying some really foolish things. But he also had this ability, oh, fabulous Peter, because you know what he says? He says, Lord, I think I, sp- I, I'm putting this part in, I think I speak for all of us. But if not, here it is. Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. This we believe. We're not going anywhere. See, the Lord, the, there are times where it's hard to love God because we think that he's not coming through. That's when it matters the most. That's when the real growth takes place. That's where the real seas are laid. How do I know God is good? He gave us his only begotten son. God is good. He can't give anything more. He gave everything he had. Jesus went all the way. He didn't quit. He could have been king without the cross. He did it for me. He did it for you. He did it for us. He gives. God's a giving God. That's why we say he's full of grace. Let me tell you. At the end of the day, we're always better keeping God close as our friend. Don't, make it, don't push him away. We need, Welcome you. Lord, I don't understand, but I know you love me. And I don't see the big picture, but I know you care. I know you don't control people, so I can't control. I know this world is broken. We're going to have bad things happen at times. I don't understand how it all. it all works, Lord, but I know this. You love me, and I love you. And I got a promise with you. You'll never leave me nor forsake me. It's a great thing. Last thing I'll say. It's also a form of a question. Can we ask the Lord and share with him our requests without becoming demanding? Can we ask Jesus for things without becoming demanding? Because there's a fine line between asking with a kind of a passionate conviction, you know, this idea of ask, seek, and knock, and, and believe, and have faith, and claim, which I believe that there are times where the Lord will call us to take a position of faith no question about it. There are times when the Lord will put in our heart that I must pray, I must believe. But you know what? There is also a danger at times from allowing our faith to become a point of presumption where we start to dictate to God how he's supposed to show us that he loves us. And there's a point where we can actually begin to, to use it as a condition for our allegiance. Now, we don't say it, but it's actually based, our attitude reveals it. And we say, Lord, you know what? You, know, you come through for me, I'm with you. This idea of, of, of allegiance, sometimes or as a verification of our spirituality. And I'm going to say that that although it's faith is a good thing to claim something, the power of word, the power of believing the Lord for something, claiming a promise, good thing. But you know what? There's also a value in humility and submission. And I'll give us a verse that closes everything up and wraps it up. And it was something that I that okay, I was last night after Saturday night service, I went home and I was thinking about this message. I was thinking about this word and this ending. And I was sleeping, like I was, wasn't totally sleeping, obviously, but I was thinking, and all of a sudden a verse came to my mind. Philippi, the, I, I knew the verse. It wasn't like it was just a random selection. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 came to my mind. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna say, I'm not saying that was God. And I'm not gonna say it wasn't. I know this. It's a word for us to hear. Let me look at this. Look what it says. Think about what we just talked about. Be anxious for nothing. How we do it? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. What is you know what? A lot of times we this. Is for, what is supplication? Prayer is asking God for. So there's many different kinds of prayer. We can offer God thanks. We can offer God. We can pray for someone else. We can pray on behalf of someone else. We can praise God. That's prayer. We can just talk to God and listen for God. And, just be, But you know what? Supplication has... Think about supplication. What's the, what's the root word there? Supply. It's basically saying, God, I ask you to supply this need of mine. But it's more than that. It actually, if you look at it, the word implies humility. It's a beseeching. It's not a demand. It's not, God, give me! I'm not saying there's not a time, but I'm saying this prayer is... Yeah, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, Lord, I pray that you would... And the word itself carries with it the connotation of a bended knee. Lord, because it has to do with being, Lord, I bring myself before you. I am not in control. I do not control things. Deliver me from that illusion. That is, I am not in control. Lord, I need this. I ask you for it. I do. I, can, I do not demand I pray that you show up for me in this. I pray that you give me strength in this area. I pray that you would help help me, Lord, not to get an angry heart in this way. Don't let, Lord. I need. I have a need. I need you to show up for me. I ask you. I ask you. I, I come before you. I demand nothing. It's not a condition of service. I bring my heart before you. See what I'm saying? It's, it's that. What does he say? In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Don't forget the gratitude. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And you know what will happen, he says? The peace of God. Think about this. The peace of God. It's not of man. It's the peace. In other words, it's not humanly, humanly manipulated stuff. It actually comes from God. will fill. Guard. The word is guard. Guard what? Guard our heart our affections, our ability to love, the anger. It will guard us, our heart, and our mind, and how much stuff happens in the mind. How much of our issue is right here in our thought life? How much of the things that set us back that keep us bound up? How many things that make us afraid of things? How many things that paralyze our ability to hope and have faith with God, to trust him, to walk with him is connected to our mind? You see this idea? Bring God into the picture. He can do amazing things in our lives. He wants to be our friend. He is the one if we will be open and let him. If we will open and let him. That's what we want. And So Lord, I, I ask you, on this day, you know, and Lord, before we, we close our service out, and we are going to have our, our time to just listen with this song on this closing time of offering, but you know what? I ask you that you would work these things into our hearts. A lot of it has to do with our expectations, Lord, and um, our assumptions. And I pray that you would remind us, Lord, not to simply be a kind of a person that only is loyal to you when it's all going our way. Teach us. Lord, to trust you in the difficult places, in the questioning places, in the disappointing places. And even more than that, Lord, I ask that you would help us to just be able to draw from you the grace and the strength that you want to pour into our lives. So many of our battles, so many of the things, Lord, that are maybe even spiritual at, at a root level that are designed to pull us backwards, Lord. We want to live this life because we, for you, and we want to be a blessing. We want to be a life giver, not a death dealer. We want our words to be life-giving. We want our attitudes to be something that speaks of your reality, Lord. If we're going to get ourselves stuck in a place, Lord, let it only be for a little while and get us out, break us free, Lord. We pray for our our um, tomorrows that you would fill them with your goodness and grace. Help us, Lord, to be the light and the life you've meant us to be, Lord. Help us to think about serving you not just for heaven but for, it was that's a great gift, but for here, now, on earth. This, your kingdom come on earth, on earth, in our lives, in the places we walk, in the people we talk to, on the jobs that we serve in and work around, Lord. Just fill our lives with your goodness and grace. Let us to be open, Lord. We pray for this. We pray for this. Truly we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.